Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. episode 14 of Crime and Beauty. Today we are actually going to cover two different cases, but at basically the same location. Therefore, the title of this episode is Murder at Green Lake. And Green Lake is a, it's one of Seattle, Washington's most beloved parks. According to their governmental website, its expansive water and green space in the center of a dense urban neighborhood draws thousands of people daily from all over the city. The park serves as a natural preserve for hundreds of species of trees and plants, as well as numerous birds and waterfowl. The 2.8-mile path around the lake provides a perfect recreational spot for runners, bikers, skaters, and walkers. Many others use the athletic fields or visit the park for boating, picnics, and swimming, but also murder. So let's get to it. I guess first, let's cover the sources that I use, which were quite quite numerous. So for the first case, I used Murder at Green Lake, Seattle, Sylvia Gaines by Susan Health, which was a historylink.org essay number 1051, and that was initially published in 1999. I also used um, Chapter 12 from Bestial by Harold Schechter, who is a fantastic true crime author. Seattle History, The Shocking Murder at Green Lake, Young Girl Died at the Lake 85 Years Ago Thursday by Casey McNurthney. And that was posted on seattlepi.com on June 15, 2011. And for the other case, I used a very in-depth article by Daniel Gilbert and Asia Fields from Seattle Times, and that was called Undetermined, A Suspicious Death at Green Lake, An Investigation's Limits, and that was published on November 22nd, 2020, so very recent. So basically, we're covering two cases, as I mentioned. One was in um, the 1920s, and the other was as recent as last year. So let's get started. We'll start chronologically with the 1926 case. In the early morning of June 17, 1926, a carpenter was walking around the north end of Green Lake to go to work. In an alder grove on a point of land, he discovered a pair of women's shoes next to the lake. He walked a few feet farther and found a young woman, deceased and nude, her body sprawled near the shore. The body belonged to 22-year-old Sylvia Gaines. Her neck bore finger marks and her skull had been crushed with a rock. Police found the weapon 15 feet away from her body, with blood and hair still sticking to it. Her clothing had been torn and it appeared as though she'd been sexually assaulted. There was a trail of blood leading from the shore to the alder grove. This led investigators to believe that after being attacked on the gravel trail, Sylvie had stumbled into the lake in an effort to escape. The killer had dragged her from the lake and carried her into the alder grove where he had strangled her, then tore off her clothing and assaulted the body. Now, Sylvia Gaines was born in Nantic, Massachusetts in 1904 and had lived in Linfield for nearly 15 years. 
She was a member of the Peabody Campfire Girls and the Linfield Congregational Church. She graduated from Peabody High in 1921 and attended Smith College in Northampton. So very active, uh, very involved in the community, very vivacious girl. Now, her parents split up in 1909 when her father, Wallace Cloys Gaines, who was nicknamed Bob, came to Washington State, leaving Sylvia and her mother behind. Shortly afterwards, the couple divorced. Wallace Gaines was a, quote, disabled veteran, according to later newspaper reports. In actuality, he was alcoholic and had suffered severe shell shock during the Great War. Despite the nationwide prohibition, Bob Gaines would drink anything, from raw moonshine to straight grain alcohol, and he became violent from this. He remarried a woman named Elizabeth who told reporters, quote, I always felt that it was much better for me to drink with Bob than to have him drinking alone or with someone else. Talk about insecurity. <laughs> In September of 1925, Sylvia, having graduated from Smith College, came to Seattle to visit her father, whom she barely knew, in an effort to reconnect. She hadn't seen him in over 16 years. After arriving in Seattle, she was hired at the King County Title Trust Company. Now, when Sylvia came into the picture, this created a great deal of tension between Elizabeth and Wallace. The fights became so intense that Elizabeth carried a pistol to the basement and had attempted to kill herself. She survived, and at Wallace's suggestion, she went to recuperate and heal from her wounds in San Francisco at a friend's house. Now, on the night of June 16th, Sylvia, in an angry mood, left their home at 108 North 51st Street shortly after 8 p.m. that evening for a walk around Green Lake, which was less than a mile from their home. The lake was bordered on three sides by private residences, and a fourth side was bordered by Woodland Park, a forested area. A couple named Stokes saw her walking along the gravel trail at around 9.30 p.m., Shortly after, they spotted a husky man dressed in a blue serge suit jacket and dark gray trousers. He had a prominent nose and a square chin, but otherwise, he had obscured his face with his cap pulled down. They felt as though he was in his 40s. From the moment Sylvia's body was discovered, the Gaines murder became one of the most sensational in Seattle's history. For one thing, Sylvia was young and pretty. She was a graduate of an elite women's college. And for another, she had a prominent relative. Her brother's father, William Gaines, was the chair of the King County Board of Commissioners. He pledged to do everything he could to, quote, bring to justice the fiend who slew my niece. Wallace spoke to reporters from his bed, apparently prostrate with grief, acknowledging that Sylvia's presence in the household caused arguments between him and his wife, Elizabeth. He said, perhaps I was too attentive. I don't know. To think that a finger of suspicion has been pointed at me. I, who love my daughter more than anything on earth. Elizabeth had at this point returned from her respite in San Francisco and stood by Wallace's side. Initially, the murder was thought to be attributed to Earl Nelson, who at the time was murdering a string of women on the west coast of the United States. But it became clear that the perpetrator was closer to home. On June 17th, Wallace had reported his daughter missing, and after her body was found, he identified her at the morgue. Ewing Colvin, the King County prosecutor, and also a good friend of Gaines's brother William, initially thought that Wallace was innocent. What father would kill his child? He thought it was likely that some fiend, like an Earl Nelson, had assaulted and killed Sylvia. But evidence kept pointing to Wallace as the murderer. When authorities questioned him on the morning of June 17th, he was very intoxicated and made statements suggesting that he knew who the murderer was. 
Investigators turned up several of Gaines's neighbors and friends who saw him on the night of the murder, very drunk and disturbed at his daughter's disappearance. Some of these witnesses reported that he'd actually changed clothing sometime in the evening. When police asked him to produce the clothing he'd been wearing at the time of the murder, he couldn't. Four boys playing at the lake nearby where the body was found also heard nothing. And Sheriff Matt Starwich said, quote, If Sylvia Gaines had been accosted in a threatening manner by a man she did not know, she would have screamed and the boys would have heard it. On Tuesday, June 29th, Wallace was arrested for the murder. The murder trial began on August 2nd, 1926. The prosecutor asked for the death penalty. A jury was chosen consisting of nine men and three women. The women jurors got a lot of attention from the press because although women had received the vote in 1920, many states prohibited them from serving on juries, a prohibition that continued in some states well into the 1940s. This is interesting because, as we know, Washington state is one of the most progressive in the country. I think that they just legalized, no, they didn't legalize, they decriminalized small amounts of cocaine and heroin. So, you know, Leave it to them to be a little bit more on the cutting edge. However, I do think that, of course, allowing women to serve on juries is is fantastic. Not as not as much convinced of the other thing, but you know maybe there's maybe there's a method to it, and maybe the rest of the country will eventually adopt it sometime in the future. But yeah, Washington State really really is progressive. Anyway, media and public attention was so intense, and the judge ordered this jury sequestered in the downtown Seattle hotel. A neighbor who had seen Wallace at night, Louis Stern, gave damning evidence during the trial. He reported that Wallace had come to his house to drink and all but confessed that he'd murdered his daughter. Wallace had said, you know what I've always told you, that if anyone in my house told me when I should come and go and when I should drink and how much, why, I would kill him. Well, that's what happened. Prosecutor Colvin had established where, when, and how Sylvia had been killed, but he had to provide a motive. Colvin's theory was that Gaines and his daughter had what was then called an an unnatural relationship. Wallace knew that Sylvia wanted to leave his home. She'd made plans to go stay with her uncle William, and he had killed her to keep her from leaving or revealing the incestuous affair. According to Colvin, the unnatural relations had evidently been going on for most of Sylvia's visit. She came to Seattle in September 1925 to get to know her father. She and her father had not seen each other since 1909, when she was five years old. Sylvia moved in with her father and Elizabeth, but they lived in a small one-bedroom house. And when Sylvia first arrived, she slept on the couch in the living room while her father and his wife slept in the bedroom. Elizabeth was very distraught by the situation. As I mentioned previously, she attempted suicide. And at that time, Sylvia and her father were threatening to leave the home and get an apartment, which is very strange. Gaines's neighbor said she believed the two were sharing a bed, meaning Sylvia and Wallace, and that Mrs. Gaines slept on the couch. Other witnesses described angry quarrels that erupted between Wallace and Sylvia in public, almost like lovers' quarrels. A Seattle patrolman had discovered Wallace and his daughter late at night parked in his car in Woodland Park. An employee of a downtown Seattle hotel testified that in November 1925, she had seen Wallace and his daughter in their night clothes together in bed. In his closing statement, Colvin argued that Gaines had been sexually involved with his daughter for some months, and that she was fed up and about to leave. On the evening of June 16th, they quarreled and Sylvia left the house to get away from him. He went after her, found her walking near Green Lake, and in a jealous alcoholic rage, killed her. 
Then, to make it look like she'd been raped and killed, he tore her clothes, dragged her body near the path, and arranged her limbs in a manner to suggest sexual attack. He continued to drink heavily and confessed the murder to his friend, Louis Stern. The jury deliberated a little over three hours and found Gaines guilty. He was sentenced to die. He appealed his case but was unsuccessful. A reporter described him as icy calm when the sentence was read, though his brother, the King County Commissioner, crumpled onto the press table and sobbed. Whilst his wife Elizabeth, seated next to him, stayed calmed and squeezed her husband's hand. She believed that Wallace would be spared, but a motion for a new trial was refused, and a petition for a writ of habeas corpus were denied in August 1928, two years after his trial started. The day before his execution, Walla Walla prisoners spread rumors that Gaines would confess. Visited by his wife and brother, Gaines seemed hopeful that Governor Roland H. Hartley would spare him, though Wallace sobbed during the nights in his cell and took visits from spiritual advisors. In his last letter to his brother, he wrote, I hate to hang for a crime which I am innocent of any knowledge of, but it looks like they are going to make me the goat. There isn't any more I can write, so give my love to your two children, whom I love. Goodbye, Bill, and good luck. Hours before he was to be hanged, his brother and wife at the Grand Hotel in Walla Walla listened as the governor made a speech broadcast by Seattle station KJR. Hartley refused appeals and a petition to spare Wallace and made no mention of the case in his radio address. Before the governor left that night for a Bellingham campaign stop, a reporter asked him if he'd make a statement on the Gaines case. Not a word to say. Wallace spurned help on his walk to the gallows and was hanged on August 31, 1928. Following the execution, his body was transported to the Veterans Memorial Cemetery in Evergreen Washelli Memorial Park in Seattle for burial with full military honors, usually conducted by the American Legion. Sylvia's remains were cremated and Butterworth Mortuary sent her ashes to her mother, also named Sylvia, in South Linfield, Massachusetts. The north end of Green Lake is gone, replaced by more than 30 large black cottonwoods. Local legend has it that the community planted the cottonwoods on what is now called Gaines Point in memory of Sylvia. Those cottonwood trees grew to be about 70 years old and provided roosting places for bald eagles and other raptors. I didn't know we called those raptors. What? Raptors. You know, Jurassic Park in Seattle. Anyway, in 1999, the Seattle Park Department decreed that the trees must go because mature cottonwoods drop limbs and threaten public safety. You should talk to my mom. My mom hates cottonwoods. They uh, trash her yard, so I'm sure she'd be cheering this on right now. So that is the end of case number one. Now, let's fast forward to 2019. On August 30th, 2019, just after 4 p.m., a paddleboarder on Green Lake noticed a dark object 20 yards offshore that hadn't moved in at least an hour. Initially, Justin Kearns thought it was a turtle, but as he paddled closer, he realized it was a body. A police officer arrived within minutes and waded into the water to reach the body. It was 23-year-old Autumn Stone. She was fully clothed except for shoes. Her vest was zipped all the way up, but once unzipped, police found shoelaces around her neck, indicating strangulation. Her 2013 Hyundai was parked at the Green Lake Community Center, and from there, a popular path traces the lake's curves, bending north and west over a mile to a pebble beach. Autumn's phone had been damaged in the water, and the Seattle Police Department couldn't extract any data from it. 
a homicide detective named Ed Garcia saw no signs of a struggle or marks of a body being dragged. In photos taken at the scene, Autumn's knuckles appear reddened or scraped with a cut on one finger, though the coating of dirt and the camera's focus make it difficult to tell. A forensic pathologist who examined her said he saw no injuries to her hands after cleaning them of debris. For Garcia, the body was the main piece of evidence, and the story written there bore no traces of homicide. I gotta tell you, he told Autumn's mother, we completely and literally have zero homicidal marks that we look for, nothing that indicates homicide. How do you explain the shoelaces around the neck? I'm a little speechless about that. The paddleboarder who discovered the body told police he'd seen a man sitting on a bench nearby. His wife also saw a man, about six feet tall, with a salt-and-pepper ponytail, who hurriedly left the area after sirens approached. It isn't clear if they saw different men, but officers never located anyone matching their descriptions. Police found only one person in the immediate vicinity, a 47-year-old man lying in a hammock who had multiple protection orders and an outstanding warrant in a misdemeanor domestic violence case. After weighing whether to detain him, officers decided his only connection to the death was being nearby and let him leave. What? A police spokesman told a Seattle Times reporter that the death was probably a suicide. No witnesses came forward to report anything unusual. The lead detective later obtained what he considered a suicide note which ended up just being a written prayer. And two weeks after Autumn's death, he closed the case. This contradicts the beliefs of Autumn's family, friends, as well as the King County Medical Examiner's Office, which found she'd been strangled to death but could not determine by whom. The official ruling on how she died is undetermined. It's very uncommon for people to strangle themselves in the way that Autumn died. According to Dr. Sally Aiken, Spokane's medical examiner, and the president of the National Association of Medical Examiners said that she has seen two or three such cases out of more than 9,000 autopsies she's performed. The police didn't contact several people who were in touch with Autumn the day she died. They didn't mention in their case report that the medical examiner found sperm cells in her, and they didn't send this or any other evidence to a lab for DNA analysis until months after closing the case. This lack of evidence that someone killed Autumn became SPD's strongest evidence that she killed herself. A firefighter who helped retrieve Autumn's body from Green Lake had never seen a death like it in his decades of work for the Seattle Fire Department. I don't think anyone could have done this to themselves, he said later. Leading up to her death, Autumn was in love and engaged to marry her fiancé Tyler Washington that September. The couple had just welcomed their first child together, Autumn's second son. They lived in her grandparents' spacious home in Everett as they tried to save up for their own place. A week before her death, Autumn stepped out to pick up food from a jack-in-the-box nearby. Her baby was sleeping and she left him with Tyler, who didn't drive. She was gone only 12 minutes but returned to find her fiancé and grandparents tending to the baby, who was limp and gasping for air. The baby survived but was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury and broken ribs. As doctors worked to save the infant's life, they determined that the injuries just could not have been accidental. Two days later, state child welfare workers sat down with Autumn and Tyler and a few of her family members to explain why they had taken custody of the baby pending an investigation. After going over the medical evidence, a state official said Tyler's past also played a part. What past? Autumn asked. 
Autumn and her fiancé had known each other since they were kids, but had lost touch before reconnecting in 2017. She wasn't one to Google boyfriend's name, and what the state official said shocked her. Tyler had another child with a previous partner and pled guilty in 2014 to shaking his baby daughter when she was just a month old, causing permanent brain damage. I just snapped, he told an Everett police detective after failing a polygraph. He was sentenced to five years in prison and released after two. At this meeting in August 2019, Tyler apologized for not telling Autumn her family, saying he thought that they wouldn't have accepted him. Duh. He said he pled guilty to protect his family but didn't commit the crime. Autumn broke off the engagement and Tyler moved out of her grandparents' home and they changed the locks. A criminal investigation was pending, and her parental rights were on the line. She was distraught at what had happened to her baby and that she wasn't allowed to visit him in the hospital, but she was determined to get her boys back. Everett police detectives had carted away evidence from her home, including a blanket, jumpsuit, car seat cover, and told her and her mother that they were not suspects. And even after the split with Tyler, Autumn told the detectives she had never seen him act violently. On August 30th, Autumn told her mother that she was going to Green Lake Park, where they had occasionally gone as a family for a walk and a pedicure. She also made plans, so there must be a there must be a spa nearby, I guess. She also made plans to visit her toddler son, who was with his father, Jacob Johnson, later in that day. Johnson had taken custody of their son the prior week and had filed a petition to limit Autumn to supervised visits, a step he felt forced to take by child welfare workers and not over any concerns about her as a parent. He believes the last text he received from Autumn confirming the visit was around 1.30 or 2 p.m. At 11.31 a.m., Autumn called her mother to say she'd arrived at Green Lake. According to her mother, it was more of a, I just wanted to touch base with you, let you know I'm okay, as opposed to a goodbye. It was more of an I'll see you later type of call. 20 minutes later, she texted her stepmom thanking her for sending a photo of her baby and telling her about plans to meet with police. Quote, I should be able to talk with police on Tuesday for polygraph, she wrote. Four days after Autumn's death, Garcia called Tyler to let him know. He sounded shocked, which was an appropriate response for someone just getting the news. But as we know, everyone reacts in different ways to news like that. Tyler arrived at SPD headquarters within 45 minutes. He said he hadn't communicated with Autumn on the day of her death and handed over his phone for analysis. He said he'd been at his mother's home in Bellevue all day on August 30th, and she verified this to police. Now, Garcia's report makes no mentions of messages on Washington's phone, but it does note that there was no location data after August 10th, more than a week before the hospitalization of his and Autumn's son. Garcia wrote up a warrant seeking Washington's phone records, but hit a stumbling block because Autumn's manner of death was undetermined, which limited Garcia's ability to gather evidence since there was no official crime established. Garcia had described an investigation as assembling a global picture of what Autumn was doing the day of her death, talking to, quote, anybody and everybody. She had spoken or texted that day with her court-appointed lawyer, a friend named Adams, and her former partner, Jacob Johnson, and all three said SPD never contacted them. Tyler gave Garcia the names of two other friends of Autumn's, but they also were not contacted by SPD. Frustrated, Autumn's father hired a private investigator named Brent Campbell, a former patrol officer in Redmond. What initially struck him was the physics implied by SPD's conclusion. Above all, he was surprised at how fast SPD closed the case, 
and that they did so without submitting any evidence for DNA analysis. He and the Stones wanted SPD to send Autumn's shoes, shoelaces, and jacket zipper to a crime lab, along with another piece of physical evidence that, as I said before, wasn't mentioned in the police report. Sperm cells recovered by the medical examiner from a vaginal swab. In early February 2020, swabs collected by the medical examiner were mailed to the Washington State Patrol's crime lab. At this time, Tyler was only a person of interest due to issues surrounding his relationship with Autumn. By early May, the crime lab had an answer. There was no semen or male DNA at all in the swabs. Garcia retired from SPD two weeks later. No one told Autumn's family about the analysis until the Times shared a copy of the report last summer. Sean Carhart, WSP's technical lead for DNA analysis, said that there are many reasons that could affect detecting sperm cells, from how evidence is stored to the kind of stain and microscope used. It's also possible that for a sample with few sperm cells, the portion that the lab analyzes might not include them. The family contacted the King County Medical Examiner and learned that it still had the original slide on which it identified the sperm. Autumn's father, James, sent another email to SPD detectives asking for the slide and other physical evidence to be submitted to the WSP crime lab. Now, SPD has reopened the case in response to the family's questions and shared the investigation with prosecutors for additional review. It is considering sending the slide from the medical examiner to a private lab. Autumn's family is still agonizing over questions that they still can't answer. Why did it take months for SPD to submit the sperm identified by the medical examiner for DNA analysis? Why did they consider the prayer that she'd written to be a suicide note? If Autumn had injuries on her hands, as Campbell firmly believes the photos show, what could explain them? Garcia told the Times he couldn't comment because the investigation is open. SPD asked Autumn's family member for a copy of the notebook in which she wrote the prayer that police considered a suicide note to better understand the context. The department is also working with the U.S. Secret Service to see if they can salvage her water-damaged phone. Four independent forensic pathologists and death investigators reviewed case documents at the request of the Seattle Times. None thought the evidence pointed definitively to suicide or homicide. The other three said that suicide in this way, while rare, was at least possible, particularly given the lack of evidence of a struggle. It has been a year since Tyler left the police interview when a Times reporter caught up with him, and he readily agreed to talk. Now 26 years old, he seemed to know little about the course of the investigation. He said he hadn't heard until informed by the Times that police concluded she killed herself, but that disclosure hardly registered. He believes she was, quote, in the wrong place at the wrong time, and someone, maybe some crazy dude, came over and got her. What? What to him and what to SPD? How, you know, if your former, if your former fiance and the mother of your child was found dead in a lake, you'd think he'd be following a little bit more closely. A year after her death, on August 30th, 2020, a few of Autumn's family members met at Green Lake and made their way out along a dock. They brought purple flowers, her favorite color, cut the stems off, and set them in the water. Autumn's older son, now four years old, tossed the petals at ducks as if they were breadcrumbs. He does pretty good, said Johnson, his father, his voice breaking. He still comes to the window from time to time, stares out the window, and says, Mom? Autumn's younger son still has a lot of issues, according to her mother. He's very fragile, but he's a miracle. 
Her family members hoped that someone might have captured something on a camera or a smartphone. If you have any information or you were at the north side of Green Lake between 11.30 a.m. and 4 p.m. on August 30, 2019, contact reporters at GreenLakeTips at SeattleTimes.com with details and attach any relevant photos or videos. Apparently that day, Autumn was wearing a black vest and gray sweatpants, and she had a beige beanie hat with her. The Seattle Police Department Homicide Unit also accepts tips at 206-233-5000. Okay, guys, and now for something beautiful. Lately, I've been very into um, Sigma brushes, and I don't know if you're familiar with the brand, but they are awesome makeup brushes, and in particular, I wanted to um, focus on the Sigma F60 foundation brush that comes in black and chrome. It is a cruelty-free and vegan product, and what it does, it is firm and slightly tapered. It's a it's a firm and slightly tapered flat brush, and it will give you a very even application on all areas of your face. It's synthetic antimicrobial fibers will not absorb product and will allow you to use foundation, primer, moisturizer, and more. And it can take, I believe, up to eight different coats of paint and primer. So um, very durable. It's kind of a long brush. It's seven. It's a little over seven inches, but it's light. Um, but I like it because it's like a very solid, sturdy brush. It looks beautiful, which I know sounds kind of silly because it's a makeup brush. So a lot of people wouldn't care, but it kind of... Uh, the Sigma brushes for me have been sort of a, an update from old brushes that I've had for years that just don't apply makeup the same uh, to the same level. And uh, for this specifically, as mentioned, it is for specifically liquid or cream products. You can use it for your liquid foundation, your primer, moisturizer, whatever. Um, but I found that with my uh, my liquid foundation, it, it is lovely in terms of application and it will provide a f- medium to full coverage. So um, these days when you've got crazy mask knee going on or whatever's happening with your face from all of the stress of 2020, um, medium to full coverage is welcome, especially on Zoom meetings. So uh, definitely check them out. They are actually on sale right now. A lot of the brushes are on sale on not only their website, but some of them are for sale um, or rather on sale at like Nordstrom and um, even TJ Maxx. So check them out. I'm a big fan. I've gotten other ones as well. But again, the foundation brush has been um, a particular favorite. So yeah, enjoy that. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the cases today, Murders at Green Lake. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that Autumn was for sure murdered, but I definitely think there is that possibility. Um, It just is is very strange for someone, a mother that's trying to get her kids back and has so much to live for and is so young. It just seems very odd that she would be, um, she would have committed suicide. So I I personally believe that there was foul play there. Um, What a strange, what a strange way to not only kill yourself, but to be in the middle of a lake, you know, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, the Sylvia Gaines case, I mean, how creepy. Talk about a horrible father. I don't know what's going on in Seattle. I don't know what's up with Green Lake, but clearly it draws some weird things um, among other uh, casual recreational activities. So 
You can follow Crime and Beauty at Crime and Beauty Podcast on Facebook, at crimeandbeauty.podcast on Instagram. Send me a Gmail at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. Rate and review. You can listen to this episode and other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Music, Audible, um, crimeandbeauty.podbean.com. I feel like I'm forgetting some, but pretty much most of the places. So thank you so much for listening. And in the meantime, stay beautiful. Thank you.